Well, as we continue our series in Ecclesiastes, this morning we'll be in chapter 5 and 6, and we'll come to the halfway point in Ecclesiastes, which I'm sure this unique book, you might be happy about that. I certainly am. (laughs) It has proven to be a insightful and a unique challenge to understand what the writer wants to communicate. But ultimately, the reason that Devin and I can stand here each week with confidence in preaching through Ecclesiastes is because these are the words of God. That our our hope is not in our ability. Our hope is not in any oratory gifting. Our hope is in the Holy Spirit to bring illumination to you. For you to sit there this morning and not just be spectators, but to be participators in engaging in God's Word as it's read, as it is exegeted, and it is preached. And so I'm grateful that we have this time together. I'm grateful that you have an opportunity this morning to once again hear God speak to you. I know Devin prayed for me this section of Ecclesiastes. I gave him the easiest section last week. (laughs) But that's what the older guy does for the younger guy. (laughs) This is a challenging section. So we're going to pray again. (laughs) Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that will stand forever. Thank you for your word that has the power to change lives. Thank you for your word that reveals who you are to us. Thank you for your word that sustains us. Thank you for your word that encourages us. Thank you for your word that fellowships with us. Thank you for your word that convicts us. Thank you for your word that cleanses us. Lord, what a gift we have this morning, particularly in this passage. So please help this church this morning to have ears to hear, to hear from you, to meet with you this morning. Lord, and please help me to communicate as well. In Jesus' name, amen. I did promise Jim I would not rip off the microphone if it stopped working for a second. So (laughs) you can be confident in that. Jeffrey Chaucer, who I was forced to study in high school. (laughs) I've still not recovered from Beowulf. Jeffrey Chaucer wrote a tale called The Pardoner's Tale. You may have heard it. 
<coughs> excuse me, three lawless young men go in search of death. They think that if they can find death, they'll be able to kill him. As they are searching, they meet an old man who tells them that death can be found at the foot of an oak tree. Off they go to the tree. There, instead of finding death, they find eight bushels of gold. With death now out of mind and greed in hand, they decided to sleep there that night, guard the treasure, and sneak away with it in the morning. Meanwhile, the youngest man goes into town to buy some food and drink. He also buys some rat poison and poisons the wine. He wants the gold all to himself, but the other two also want the gold for themselves. So they plot to kill him when he returns. Sure enough, that is what they do. The man returns and they stab him to death. Then too, to celebrate, they lift up their cups and drink the poisoned wine. They die as well. The old man was right. All three greedy men found death under the tree. Like the pardoner's tale, Ecclesiastes 5, 8 verses through 6, 9 introduces us to the dark side of pursuing wealth, to the evil of greed. It also tells a tragic tale that those who hunger and thirst for money will never be satisfied. <clears throat> now, in this passage, if you look with me at verse 8, <clears throat> and I'm going to read the passage, oh. starting in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and yet and there are yet a higher ones over them. But this is gain for the land in every way, the king committed to cultivated fields. That's enough to get you going in the morning, isn't it? <laughs> he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is, is, the, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. 
There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing at all that he desires, yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his life are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, if it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, Yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. Wow. All that the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. I really did give Devin the easier passage. (laughs) In a unique literary device, the preacher uses what is called a chiasm to present his message. A chiasm is used to emphasize what is very important to the author. It, it is a repetition of a similar idea in reverse order. In today's writing, when we want to emphasize certain words, we can make them bold or we can italicize them to emphasize their importance. But the ancient writers didn't have anything like fonts to be able to do that. And so they used this literary device called a, a chiasm. And I don't know if we can... Um, Is it up there? There it is, yes. And as you can see, a chiasm, um, A top and A bottom are the same. People who cannot be satisfied, verse chapter 5, verses 8 through 12. And A below, people who cannot be satisfied, chapter 6, verses 7 through 9. And then B, people who cannot enjoy, 5.13. And B below, people who cannot enjoy, 6, 3 through 6. What is good? See. What is bad? See. And then in the center of the chiasm, always in the center of the chiasm, is the main point. God keeps people occupied with joy. That is a chiasm. Chiasms are frequently used throughout the Bible. In fact, there are well over a thousand chiasms in the Bible. If you would take time at just look for them, you will, you will find them. They're fascinating to, to when you're looking for them and you realize what they are and then you begin to see, oh, well, that's what the main point of that section is, that passage is. And so chiasms are the best way to describe it in today's language, a chiasm is just like a sandwich. You've got the bread, and you've got the bread, then you've got some mustard and mustard, and then you've got the meat in between, and that's the center point. And that's what a chiasm is, and that's what the preacher is using here in Ecclesiastes 5, 8 through 6, 9. He's using a chiasm to emphasize a certain point. And we, we have chiasms in our own day and age. One of the chiasms we have is when the going gets tough, the tough get going. 
That's a chiasm. Ben Franklin had a chiasm. He would say, by failing to prepare, you are preparing to fail. That's a chiasm. And in Scripture, other places we see, Jesus said the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so you, you see, it's, it's, a, it's a literary device used to emphasize a certain point. And it, it works its way from top and bottom all the way to the middle to where you get what is the author's main intent, what he is trying to communicate to you. And here we see that the opening verses 5, through, five 8 through 12 people who cannot be satisfied. And in that section, you'll, we'll read about some instruction and we'll read about, uh, we'll have a proverb in there. And then in B, people who cannot enjoy. 5, 13 through 17. And there's a reflection by the author and he'll use an anecdote, a little story to, to describe or illustrate what he's trying to communicate. And then C, what is good? He begins to move towards his main point. Then D is his main point. God keeps people occupied with joy. And then lower C, what is bad? Here's a reflection of what is bad in life. And then back to B, people who cannot enjoy, another anecdote. And then A, people who cannot be satisfied, another proverb. And that, that should help you, I would hope. As I was reading this, you're thinking, this makes no sense. Where is he going with this passage? What is the preacher trying to communicate? And when I read that, I said the same thing. What is he trying to communicate? But as this chiasm became clear, then you begin to see, okay, there's a logic to this. There's a point to this. And that's in the middle of this chiasm that he makes his main point. And so on both sides of the chiasm, he uses tools to help us understand what his message is all about. So he uses proverbs and he uses reflections and he uses anecdotes and he uses instructions to lead us to the main point. And so in this passage, the, the, the preacher is using a chiasm in this section, a chiasm to warn us. And that's what he is after here. First, to warn us about the dangers of greed and the tragic end of pursuing wealth, which is a very familiar theme in Scripture. On, on many occasions, Jesus warned, warned us about pursuing wealth. In Luke 12 and 15, he talked about wealth having no heavenly value, about the man who was hoarding and storing up all his goods and then this night his life is taken. Or in Matthew 13, pursuing wealth makes us unfruitful in the kingdom. Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. And then in Mark 8.34, pursuing wealth will ruin our eternal future. Mark When he went ashore, oops, sorry, yeah. and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his own soul. And that pursuing wealth is ruining our eternal 
future. Proverbs 23 makes a powerful and clear statement about what the author of Ecclesiastes is trying to communicate in Proverbs 23, verse 4. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone, for suddenly it sprouts wings. Do not toil to acquire wealth. For suddenly it sprouts wings. And in 1 Timothy 6, Paul very helpfully lets us know the danger as the preacher is here telling us the same thing. He goes on to say, Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing With these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. And goes on in verse 10 and verse 17 to tell us, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. And so the message here in the chiasm, in the center point, what the preacher is after for us is instead of pursuing wealth, the preacher wants us to enjoy the good gifts that God daily provides and to be content with what we have. That is what we can learn from this chiasm. This chiasm gives us vivid and powerful images that describe the danger of of pursuing wealth and, and not enjoying the things that God has already given you. He's, he's warning us about wanting things that God has not provided. How often can, does that happen? Where we labor and toil and strive and moan after things that God has not provided. And yet we work to try and provide them for ourselves. And that is what the preacher here is trying to warn us about. So my proposition this morning is this. It's simple. Instead of pursuing wealth that never satisfies, enjoy God's daily gifts. Instead of pursuing wealth that never satisfies, enjoy God's daily gifts. I have two points And a conclusion, and the first point is, the first thing we learn from this chiasm, the first thing we learn is that people who pursue wealth will not be satisfied. That's verses 5, 8, and then 6, 7 through 9. Look at 5, starting in verse 8. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher and there yet by by higher ones over them. 
But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. Now, what does this have to do with money? And Good question. Well, earlier in chapter 4, the preacher speaks about the oppression of the poor. And here, he's simply giving an illustration about greed. As Proverbs 22, 7 says, the rich rule over the poor. That is what is happening here. The rich rule over the poor. And when the preacher says, and when he uses the phrase watched by, he's not meaning they just kind of look at one another, but actually it means that the, the wealthy, the, the higher officials, all these guys are looking out for one another. They're watching out for one another. They're concerned with protecting each other's wealth so that their wealth does not dissipate. That's how the preacher starts this out. And he tells us that we should not be amazed by this. How true this is in our own day and age. Don't be amazed when you see the oppression of the poor. Don't be amazed when you see injustice. Don't be amazed when you see how those who are wealthy seek to be wealthier, how those, and, and how the, the officials, the government, the, how you see corruption at times in government. And we see corruption everywhere. It's part of human nature. It's the fall. Don't be amazed at that. That's what's at really the center of the human heart. In the New York Times recently, there was a story written by a young man about his life. Shortly, he says, In my last year on Wall Street, my bonus was $3.6 million. And I was angry because it wasn't enough. I was 30 years old, had no children to raise, no debts to pay, no philanthropic goal in mind. I wanted more money for exactly the same reason an alcoholic needs another drink. I was addicted. That is what the preacher is after. And so in verse verse 10 of chapter 5, he goes on to say, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. He speaks directly to the problem of desiring and pursuing wealth. And, and he uses repetition here to emphasize his point. If you see in the problem, if he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. Let's just say it twice to make sure we get the point across. Don't assume in this passage, though, that he's only speaking to the rich. Watch what happens when the lotto hits $400 million. And how many people line up at the local 7-Eleven or food store or whatever to get their lotto ticket. Don't assume he's speaking only to non-Christians here. Scripture's numerous warnings about The desire and pursuit of money are there for a reason. A third of the Gospels, Jesus speaks about money. Now, do you ever dream about winning the lottery? Where do your daydreams go? You hear about a $400 million lottery and you just think, if I win, yes, 
10% is going to the Lord. <laughs> and then there's all these other ministries I'm going to give to. And, and, I'm, and I'm going to give some to all my children. And, and there are friends in the church that I, I just want to help. And, and I'm just, I'm going to give this away. And I wonder how much they're going to take out in taxes. And, and then, but I'm going to give a lot away. Now, I'm not sure what I'm going to do with the other 399 million, but I'm going to give a lot away. Do you daydream about winning the lotto and thinking, oh, my money troubles will be settled? The problem with pursuing wealth, the preacher tells us, is that when we get it, it still does not satisfy. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is vanity. It's a breath. It's a vapor. It doesn't last. It won't, it won't be sustained. And in verse 11, he goes on to say, when goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? He, he goes on to say, listen, when, when goods increase, so does the consumers around you increase. In other words, you know, you win, the, you win the lottery and you discover relatives and friends that you never knew you had. When you are wealthy, you hire yard workers, you hire maids, you hire chauffeurs, you hire personal chefs, you hire nannies. And guess what? All have to be paid. Now maybe some of you are thinking, that's not so bad. <laughs> but the preacher lets us know it doesn't satisfy. It's never enough. And so in verse 12 of chapter 5, he shares a proverb. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. They worry. They stay up at night fretting about their money, fretting about their, the things they own, concerned about what they have. And then on the other side of the chiasm in chapter 6, he repeats the same danger of pursuing wealth. Look at verse 7 of chapter 6. All the toil of a man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. We work in order to eat, and yet our appetites are never satisfied. So true. You wake up every morning hungry. At least most of you do. Some of us do not. But you wake up every day hungry. You want more. You, you have an appetite. And the appetite here, brothers and sisters, is not only about food, but it's about money. And, and what he's saying here is, are we really content with what we have? Are we content with where we are? Are we content? And in verse 8, he continues on and he says, For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? With respect to the appetite for food and wealth, neither the wise or fools will ever be satisfied because we all have the same hunger. But the poor actually do have an advantage. The poor do have an advantage over the rich. And you think, that, is that logical? 
Well, look at verse 9. Look at the, the advantage that the poor do have over the rich. And here's a proverb. Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity in striving after wind. And so what the preacher is saying here is that the poor man in this proverb is content with what he has. His eyes don't wander all the time. Oh, I wish I had that. I wish I had that. Oh, I wish, you know, I really could use that and I really could use that. No, his eyes don't wander like the fool whose eyes wander and whose appetite is never satisfied, whose appetite is always wanting more. And so his point is, is that the first thing that we learn is that people who pursue wealth are never satisfied. Who desire and crave wealth. Now this isn't an anti-wealth passage. And it's not an anti-work hard and earn a living passage. It's what's in the heart. It's the covetousness that comes out of the heart. It's the desiring what God has not provided for you. Nothing wrong with asking God to provide for you. Nothing wrong with praying and seeking the Lord and saying, Lord, we we see a need here. Or, Lord, could you provide this? It's the coveting and the craving and the demanding and the discontentment. The second point is, as we move towards the main point in the middle, the second thing we learn in this chiasm is that it is evil when people who, when people do not enjoy life and God's daily gifts. It's evil. Look at 13 in chapter 5, verse 13. The preacher says, There is a grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Grievous there would be sickening, a sickening evil. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. He loses everything. Because of a bad investment. And now he has nothing left. He has no inheritance. The end result of loving wealth and pursuing it is a life goal that is in total despair and ruin. He's lost all that he has. He finds no enjoyment in life and the good gifts that God provides. For he goes on. Here's the tragic Conclusion. He goes, as he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hands. This, is, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him for, who toils after the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and in anger. It is... A tragic story for all the accumulation of his wealth. This tragic story, this man loses everything in a bad, advent, a bad venture and he ends up eating alone in the dark. Finding no fulfillment in wealth. 
ending up with emptiness, trying to grasp the wind. You know, when we think of rich, we often think of the Dan Snyders and the Warren Buffetts and the Bill Gates and the Steve Jobs, men who have wealth even beyond our ability to calculate. But spend five days walking through the dusty streets of India and you begin to understand what is rich and what is wealth from a whole different perspective. Because as you walk by those individuals, they look at you and they see Bill Gates and they see Warren Buffett and they see Steve Jobs. And they wonder, are you the ones in this passage? And we are. We are in this passage. And on the other side of this chiasm in chapter 6, verse 1, he repeats himself again. He says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a sickening evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's goods and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For the stillborn child comes in vanity and goes in darkness and in darkness The stillborn child's name is covered. Moreover, it is not seen the sun nor known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he, the man who was given wealth. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. This story is even more tragic than the story of the rich man who lost all his money in a bad venture. God has given this particular man wealth and possessions, and yet he lives in darkness. And three times darkness is mentioned in this passage because God in his wisdom, for whatever reason God chose, has withheld from this man the ability to enjoy what he accumulated. Just like we see in Luke 12, 15, the man who gathered and stored in his barns and said, I'm going to save this. And God says, you fool, this very night your, your life is taken. Douglas O'Donnell in his commentary on this speaks, he says, the physical darkness, death of the stillborn child is better, can you imagine, than the spiritual and mental darkness that plagues the living rich. The stillborn child who never lived a day is better off than the rich man who lived 2,000 years and fathered 100 children. Why? Because the child found rest while nothing can compensate for the rich man's lack of joy. The point? A long life without enjoyment is far worse than no life at all. As a result, the conclusion the preacher comes to is that it's better to have never lived than to live a long life and not enjoy the things that God has given us. 
to not enjoy what God has provided. People who pursue wealth, they are never satisfied. And it's a sickening evil to not enjoy the good life and the good gifts that God has given. This is the fourth time in the passage, in, in, in actually the book, that the preacher tells us to enjoy life. And that's where we come to the middle of our chiasm in verse 18 of chapter 5. Something good is happening. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil which which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Okay, this is what God has done for us. Here's your lot. Here's your lot in life. God's created you. God sent his son to die for you. God has rescued you, redeemed you promise to care for you and provide for you to be a father to you and he goes on and he says here this is your lot and it's good and fitting to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life God has given him that's why I'm going out to eat for lunch after this meeting because I'm obeying God's word Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and the power to enjoy them. And so there's this, there's this principle here that if you take joy in what God has provided, that you are content in what God has given you, you take hold of that, He gives you the power to enjoy them. Or if you covet and crave and demand what God has not provided, as we saw in chapter 6, he does, he does the opposite. He prevents you from enjoying the good things He has given. And goes on to say, this is the gift of God. For He, not speaking God, us, for He will not re- much remember the days of His life because God keeps Him occupied with the joy in His heart. So in other words, you just have a joyful life. Life goes on. In the midst of all this darkness, the gospel shines so brightly as the antidote to the tragic enslavement of the love of money. In this passage, God is mentioned four times as the one who gives true life, as the one who gives the gift of life, as the one who has given us all things richly to enjoy. Now we know it's in Christ. The preacher does not know that here, but we do. We know it's in Christ. And we know that if we are in Christ, we can use our days to enjoy Christ, to have an affection for Christ, to to want to be near Him because He has provided access to the Father by His death. And we can find our ultimate joy and rest and peace and light in God rather than in material things and money. Sidney Gradonis says this, we can use our days to pursue money and end up with vexation and sickness and resentment, or we can begin every morning with the goal of enjoying the day God has given us. We can start with the common everyday things. The preacher suggests, find enjoyment in our food, our drink, and our toil. We don't have to be rich to find something to enjoy each day. Goodness gracious. I mean, 
all of a dollar will get you something chocolate and you can have your you can have a great day from there on now look let me let me say this if you are rich if you are well off don't despair it's not like your fate is doomed <laughs> okay um, in 5 in 519 the preacher stresses everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift of God. So receive the gift, enjoy the gift, share the gift. Just see it as a gift from God. Wealth itself is not evil. It's a gift. But wealth as an end in and of itself is evil. In Matthew 6, Jesus gives us a choice between two ways of living with respect to money. We'll end here. In verse 24, he says this, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But then he goes on to help us understand what we are to do. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Are you not? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Here's an important point. For the Gentiles, the unbelievers, seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. The answer is to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The answer is to grow in your affection and your love for Jesus Christ, which will make everything else in this world pale in comparison. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be trained by your word and to be protected by your word. Thank you for guarding us this morning to guard our hearts from the deceitfulness of riches. Lord, we do not want to be deceived by riches. We want to find all our enjoyment in you. And we ask that you would help us to do that this morning and each and every day following in Christ's name. Amen.